Good evening. Man, it's good to see you sitting in the front rows. That's so awesome. I feel like a proud papa tonight. It's amazing. That you know that song we just sang couldn't, couldn't be more perfect uh, for, for tonight and what we are gonna, gonna launch into. So let, let's pray. Lord, apart, apart from amazing grace, um, we would be doomed and hopeless and damned. But because of it, Lord, we are saved. So I, I pray, Lord, that these, these massive truths that uh, are in front of us tonight and in the weeks to come would, uh, would shape us and shape how we see reality, how we see humanity and that we would adjust to the reality, Lord, that, that you have recorded for us. And we thank you that your word is not dead words on a page. Your word is living and active. And you speak to us in the moment. So do that tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Massive truths tonight uh, concerning humanity. So... For the next two and a half chapters, we'll be wading into the murky waters of the human condition. And there are three groups of people that Paul addresses in these two and a half chapters. So the first one is the pagans, those nasty, yucky, sinful pagans. I mean, they do nasty stuff, stuff you don't even want to talk about. And it's, they're just the terrible, uh, the, the worst things you can think of. That's what those people do. But then you've got this second group, and they're Gentiles, but they're moral, at least. They affirm morality. They affirm virtue. They say this is right and this is wrong, and we try to do what's right. And then you have the third group, which is the religious Jews who, you know, had the prophets preaching and, you know, in the past and the word of God given to them and so on. And there's a, there's a crescendo at the end of these chapters where Paul says of all of them, those nasty pagans in their terrible sin, those people who applaud virtue, the religious Jews, Paul says of all of them, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, everyone. Therefore, everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs grace. And so Paul, he's painting just a very black backdrop for us so that the gem of the gospel might stand out, contrasted against the black backdrop of human depravity. So let's begin. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth. Years ago, way back in the 80s, previous century, I used to drive for a living. I drove for the LA County Office of Education and I would deliver films. You know, those films that you put on a projector and they would show these films in schools in Southern California. And I would drive all over LA County, north to south. And there were some neighborhoods and places I just didn't enjoy going to because they were so run down and, you know, graffiti and trash everywhere. And I was just kind of, was a little depressing going to these neighborhoods. But then there were other ones, you know, by the ocean or whatever and the palm trees and all that. It just gave me a good feeling. I would have avoided the ugly neighborhoods if I could have, could have, but I couldn't. But even if I could have avoided them, they still would have been there. They still would have existed. And, and I say that to say this, in the Bible, there are some truths that are not pleasant. They just aren't. But avoiding them doesn't change the reality of their existence. And what we have before us is an absolutely detailed and true, true assessment of the human condition. It is the singular, true, authoritative assessment of the human condition. So this section, man, it flies in the face of evolution, which, which asserts that man started here and then has been climbing his way up. The, the evolutionary process and is gaining ground. In fact, the contrary, this section reveals that humans started high and then devolved to the level of beasts and animals. So, God will not allow people, society, humanity, to go on indefinitely in their sin. He won't, and we've seen that in scripture. Any more than a physician would say to a person with cancer, well, I, I don't wanna carve, carve into you or cause you any discomfort, so I won't do anything about it. So just as a surgeon knows there must be surgery, so too the wrath of God will fall, dealing surgically and powerfully with humanity whenever people fail to embrace Christ and so on. So notice a couple things. First of all, it says that God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So there's two uh, distinct categories here uh, that God is revealing his wrath against. Ungodliness is specifically sin directly against God. And that word, it means irreverence, it's impiety, it's blasphemy, it's mockery. Unrighteousness, on the other hand, is sin against each other. It's sin against fellow humans. When Moses came down the mountain, he had two stone tablets in his hand, didn't he? And on the first stone tablet, there were four commandments, all dealing with our relationship to God. The second tablet contained the remaining six commandments, all dealing with our relationship to one another. 
So the first tablet dealing with our vertical relationship, the second tablet dealing with our horizontal relationships. So a man is ungodly when he isn't right with God, and he is unrighteous when he isn't right with his fellow man. So the wrath of God is to be revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of people. The two stone tablets are tied together. So you cannot have a right relationship with God and a wrong relationship with man. John said, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, you're lying. The truth of God isn't in you. It doesn't work like that. So notice it says, those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The word hold is, is important. It means suppress, those who suppress the truth. Those who push the truth back. It's used to refer to a, to a helmsman steering a boat against the current. So we're suppressing it. I'm pushing it against it. So the, the current wants to take the boat in a certain direction, but determined to go the opposite way, the helmsman just holds that rudder steady in such a way that he might go his own way instead of the way of the current. And so too, the wrath of God is revealed against those who are determined to go their own way and do their own thing regardless of what they know to be true. And there's an emphasis upon this in this section of Romans. Humans have plenty of light when it comes to God. You need to see this tonight. You need to see this. Verse 19, what can be known about God, just let that sink in, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is massive. Creation all around us testifies of God's existence. The majesty of the heavens alone have spoken to every tongue, every culture, every society that has ever existed from the beginning. They've never stopped testifying to the power and the wisdom of God. Psalm 19, David said, Verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pour out their speech and night to night they reveal knowledge. There's no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The, 
the sky above us, the stars in the nighttime sky are preaching to humanity that God is great, God is wise, God is powerful, and God is good. They have never stopped preaching this message. All humans everywhere for all time are without excuse because of it, according to Paul. God has put his eternal attributes on display for all to see every single day. It couldn't be more obvious. It's obvious. The story is told of Napoleon Bonaparte. He was walking around with a group of admirals and, and uh, they were discussing whether or not God existed. And, and at a certain point, Napoleon pointed to the sky and said, sirs, if you're going to get rid of God, you must get rid of these first. Napoleon was right. The heavens declare the glory of God, the reality, the substance, the weight of God. You know, my mind is always blown when, when I see something that helps me understand to a certain measure the, the enormity of the universe. So let me see if I can illustrate this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 93 million miles, if it was represented by the thickness of a piece of paper, or the thinness, we might say, of one piece of paper, the distance from here to the closest star, okay, so again, that's 93 million miles right there. The distance to the closest star, if that represents 93 million miles, would be a stack of paper that would be 31 miles high. What? Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Darn it, 31 feet high, 31 feet. It's the next one, it's the next one. The distance between the earth and the edge of the Milky Way would be a stack of paper 310 miles. So again, if this thin piece of paper right there represented 93 million miles, we'd have to stack this up 310 miles just to get to the edge of our galaxy, our neighborhood. It's almost like our cul-de-sac, really. We're just a tiny little blip in the whole story. Scientists have discovered that the universe is expanding, and that's a, that's a relatively recent discovery, that it's, it's moving outward. Now, the truth, that truth has always been in the Bible, at least since Isaiah's day. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40, verse 22, it is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. <laughs> Notice Somehow Isaiah knew the shape of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. 
Edwin Hubble, the inventor of the famous Hubble telescope, he confirmed what the Bible said two and a half thousand years earlier. In 1929, he discovered that the universe is expanding without question. Galaxies are moving away from us. He discovered they're, they're stretching out like Isaiah said they were. Light from these galaxies, he discovered, is shifted into longer wavelengths. As, and as they get longer, the light gets redder. So it's called the red shift. So as he observed this red shift, as the farther away galaxies were moving, the, he's going, oh my goodness, they, they, are, they are moving, they are accelerating away. It's kind of like what happens when, when an ambulance goes by or a fire truck and you hear the, the sound approaching, whatever and it passes you and now the sound is, begins to get lower in pitch it's the same kind of idea the waves are lengthening they're stretching out the sound waves of the ambulance or the fire truck the light of the galaxies moving away now this blew everyone's mind because no one had thought, except for Christians, that the universe had a beginning. And so Einstein, having put forth his theory of relativity, had to eat crow and admit that the universe is expanding. What does that mean? It means that the universe had a beginning. And so there was a beginning point to the universe. It shook the scientific world. They didn't want to concede the point because now those Bible-believing people are going to go, see, see. Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist, um, formerly director of NASA's uh, Goodard Institute for Space Studies, he wrote this. Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are now the same. Consider the enormity of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain given moment. It asks what caused this effect? Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer this question. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of his own reason, the story ends like a bad dream. The scientist has scaled the giant mountain of his ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. He grips the top of the final rock with his last bit of strength. He pulls himself over the top. And as he does, he's greeted by a group of Christians who've been there for centuries. So, God has been speaking clearly, powerfully, daily, never stopping, preaching his glory to all creation. It's obvious. <laughs> so what does man do? 
suppresses it. He suppresses it. That's verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, I, I think it's really significant that the Bible never attempts to prove that God is. It just begins with the grand statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just declares it. The fact of God's existence is self-evident and is taken for granted in the Bible. The person who says differently, the Bible bluntly just calls a fool. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. Psalm 53, 1, same thing. In both of those Psalms, the root cause of the atheism is traced not to an intellectual source. It's not an intellectual problem, but rather to a moral source. The primary reason why man suppresses the truth of God, which is being declared day by day through creation, is that if there really is a God, then we are accountable to him. And we'll have to submit to him. And the essence of sin is not submitting to God. It's rebellion. So, Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise. <laughs> Boy, that rings true, doesn't it? A lot of claiming to be wise out there. All the podcasts and the, you know, man, a lot of people claiming to be wise. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, what Paul is saying here, it, it, it's literally true. It's borne out in anthropology. As I mentioned, on every corner of the planet, throughout all of history, every culture has had uh, an innate need to worship. Every, I mean, everybody worships. But suppressing the truth about the true and living God. They've substituted gods of their own choosing. That's, that's the idolatry thing. The Egyptians said, well, if I were God, I would be bright and powerful. I would, I would cause the, the crops to grow. And, uh, and, and I would blast people who are out of line. And so, so the Egyptians worshiped the sun god Ra. and a lot of other gods, but that was one of the main ones, the sun god. And then the American Indians said, well, if I were God, I would soar over the mountains majestically. And so the eagle is a god to many. The Hindu said, if I were God, I would be gentle and caring. And so the cow, of all things, is worshipped as a God. Suppression and substitution. That is 
the pattern throughout the history of mankind. It's suppression and substitution. Now, I know the modern mind or the postmodern mind in this way, well, we don't do that in our day and age. Our, our gods aren't birds and four-footed creatures. Really? What about the lions and the ravens? <laughs> I, I'm guessing in the next couple weeks, we're going to see these giant churches that hold 70,000 people and we're going to see worshipers in there that have painted their faces and beer bellies with the colors of their God. And they are going to hoot and holler and worship. Our God is simply whatever we give first place or highest value to in our lives. I mean, it really boils down to that. Humans have two choices. We can worship God, or we can worship something that God made. It's the only two choices. And there are consequences to worshiping creation. Reality <laughs> is stubborn. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So God said, okay, you're going to keep suppressing the truth. I'm going to let you have at it. God didn't force. God isn't interested in automatons or robots that he forces to love him and live for him. God isn't like that. So here's the first of three times where it says that God gave them up. He let them go, worked with them, worked with them, and they kept pushing, 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 and God said, okay. They worshiped animals, and thus they became like which they worshiped. They became animalistic. They became instinctual and giving in to their base desires, not governing them with a moral compass, not living in harmony with their maker. And so their bodies being used in ways they were not designed. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. So this is the de-evolution of man. When you suppress the truth and deny the truth in the living God, you devolve. You begin to act like animals and you begin to worship the creation rather than creator. So, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So 
you know, we're living in a time when homosexuality has become so ubiquitous that, you know, many churches have begun to affirm it. And, and homosexuality, homosexuality seems tame in comparison to some of the other things that are going on in our culture and in the world right now. So let me just kind of land the plane tonight for the next few minutes with a little exhortation um, because this is such a, I mean, this morning we're on our prayer walk and uh, we're praying for numerous people in our church whose kids are in homosexuality, are into LGBTQ stuff and in it big, in it hard. And so there's probably a couple of you here tonight that are dealing with these issues in your family or in your home. And so, so let, me, let me just start with, with a baseline statement. The truth is non-negotiable. Okay, it's, it's non-negotiable. It's not something that can sway with the cultural moment. It remains steady. It's above any moment in history or time. It's transcendent. Now, we, we run the risk at this point as Christians of being called unloving and dogmatic and, and worse, you know. But, but this is a risk that we have to take. Dogma and, and the related word dogmatic are used as pejoratives in our culture there's no bigger sin than certainty <laughs> in today's culture, uh, in our postmodern culture. Dogma simply means doctrine or teaching. And therefore, being dogmatic is simply being firm and committed to the doctrines and the teachings that you believe to be true. That's what that means. And so for Christians, it's being firm and committed to the teachings of the Bible, which we believe to be authoritative, and uh, the Bible is, is over our beliefs and conduct. We, we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The renewing of our minds primarily comes through Scripture, shaping us. So doctrine is a big deal in the Bible. Jesus addressed it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. So false prophets and teachers, what they teach is false. But they wear sheep's clothing. What is sheep's clothing? Well, they're in church. That's, that's they're, they're amongst sheep, amongst true sheep. And so Jesus tells us a little more of what, what sheep's clothing actually is. Matthew 7, 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So, so prophesying and casting out demons and doing mighty works, all in Jesus' name, is the sheep's clothing. 
That's the sheep's clothing that these false teachers wear. So if you see someone prophesying and casting out demons, you'll probably think, well, they're more radical Christian than I am. <laughs> I haven't cast out a demon for a while. But Jesus says they're not a Christian at all. Not even close. Depart from me, I nev never knew you. If sheep's clothing is so convincing, how can we know a false prophet is false? Right? I mean, that's the obvious question. If sheep's clothing is so convinced, they're casting out demons, for goodness sake. They're prophesying in Jesus' name. They're, I mean, well, then how, how can we know? Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. And I used to think, I used to think that, that we inspect their lifestyle and their character. That's, that's, that's what the fruit is. But clearly, fruits in this case is their teaching, it's their doctrine, it's their dogma. This is why the faithful church, the faithful pastor has to stay tethered to the Bible. We have to faithfully preach the word of God in season, out of season, and never deviate. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Doctrine, that's not a word confined. Christians don't own that word. Culture has its doctrine and its teachings as well, right? Psalm, or rather Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So human-based philosophies can be very, very seductive, very powerful. And they can draw you in. They can take the Christian captive, according to Paul. And so today, many churches are capitulating to the cultural doctrines. Many churches are being taken captive by human-generated philosophies that aren't according to Jesus. Many churches are becoming, and this is the buzzword, woke. That's the cultural dogma that's being taught by culture. There's a famous story in Daniel chapter 3 where the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has a 90-foot-tall statue of gold erected on the plains of Dura. 
And he commanded all the government officials, all the influencers, all the people of importance, gather around the statue on a certain day at a certain time. And these people were from all over the world. They would gather. Babylon was an expanding empire that conquered countries, that brought the best of those uh, countries, the best people from those countries to serve and to become part of the, the Babylonian culture. And that's what happened with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Shack and Abednego, right? The story kind of centers on those guys, and they came from different cultures, and they spoke different languages, and they all have different gods and different religions. It was a multicultural society, and as a way of culture building and, and fostering na national unity, all the people were told, gather around the statue and bow down to the statue when the worship team starts. So as soon as they start playing, everybody bow to the ground. It's a show of national unity. What Nebuchadnezzar was saying through the event is, I'm not, I'm not asking you to worship Babylonian gods instead of your gods. I'm asking you to worship Babylonian gods in addition to your gods. And so worship whatever gods you want to in private, but in public, we bow down to this image. In other words, as long as you keep your religion private and in public you embrace our religion and our values, you'll be fine. It's all good. Do whatever you want, in private, in public. However, you've got to be like everybody else. Same opinions, same values. Don't worry, folks. That is the infamous duct sock. Two, two more are going to go off shortly. <laughs> first time that happened, first time in the building we're in here, and it went off like a, and we're like all like ducking for cover. Like, what? So, here's the thing. The band strikes the first chord. Everybody bows down like, yeah. I'm in for this. I don't have to give up my gods. All I got to do is bow down to this one. But there's three guys standing up straight as a board. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow. They refused to bow. They, they weren't willing to stay in sync with their culture if it put them out of sync with God. So the truth was non-negotiable to them. It was not something that, that they could negotiate. It's like, this is a done deal. No, it's just no. And so it should be with us. Even if we earn the cultural frown, which we will, you'll be accused of being unloving and intolerant or even hateful if you refuse to bow. If I said to you, love is good and hate is bad, probably a lot of you go, well, that sounds right. 
Some of you are going, well, I don't know. The reality is some hate is good. Some love is bad. It all depends on the object of the love or the hate. So, for example, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John is speaking of a, of a sinful, of a wicked love that demonstrates that you don't have the love of the Father in you. Proverbs 6, 16 says, there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God rightly hates some stuff. Therefore, we must rightly hate some stuff, namely the stuff that God hates. There is sinful love and there is righteous hate. Just as there is righteous love and sinful hate, it all depends on the object being loved or hated. This is why we cannot disconnect love and truth. They, we cannot disconnect them. If we disconnect, lo disconnect love from truth, we end up with a love that God hates. It capitulates, it bows. It goes down when the man kicks in and bows to the cultural idols. And if we have the truth with, without love, we end up just making a bunch of noise that's annoying to people, a clanging symbol. So truth and love together is powerful and influential. And it's an agent to our growth and maturity in Christ. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. When love and truth are together, that's the recipe for maturity. And that's how we deal with our cultural moment. We don't not speak the truth but we make sure that love is tethered to the truth when we do speak the truth. We love folks, whatever their sin is, because we know Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to the, to the pagans who are just going free for all, do whatever you want, however you want. Jesus is the answer for them. Jesus is the answer for the, the moral, the applaud virtue, and I'm an upright person. He's the answer for the Jewish person who holds on to the Old Testament religion and denies Christ. Jesus is the answer for all people. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, you know, 
you guys, man, you were drunkards, you were swindlers and thieves and homosexuals, and you were all this stuff, but you were washed. You were cleansed. That's not who you are. Not anymore. When love and truth are together, it's a party for the soul. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love rejoices with the truth. Whenever love and truth are together, there are gonna be those who wanna crash the party and call it all hate. And Christian, you just gotta bear that. You gotta bear it. Jesus says, when they speak evil of you on account of me, you, there's a special blessing for you. A special blessing. So suffer well, Christian. And don't capitulate to the culture. Don't bow to the cultural gods. Just to, you know, go along to get along. Hold on to the truth and hold on to love. Loving the folks that are even hating you. Let's pray. Lord, these are, these are challenging times for, for your people. And judging by how many churches and ministries are, are, are loosening their grip on the truth and um, are bowing to the cultural idols. This is, a, this is a moment that's fraught with challenges. And, and so, Lord, I, I pray for us. I pray for Lighthouse Church, Lord, that, that we would be the kind of people that, that we never, never give up the truth. but that we never, Lord, run with the truth and leave love behind. And Lord, our, our world and the, the lost and sinful people, Lord, they need, they need people who will speak the truth in love, who won't pat them on the back or patronize them, will speak clearly and with love and grace. We all need Jesus. No matter what our sin of choice is, we all need Jesus. So Lord, for those who are maybe in a, in a place where they're dealing with some of these issues, maybe it's in their family and having a hard time, knowing what to say or how to say it or that kind of thing. Lord, I pray that you'd bring comfort to their heart, knowing that the Holy Spirit is in them. And that there doesn't need to be some forced conversation. But they can be at rest and at ease, knowing that you are on the throne.
and you love their lost brother or sister or child or whoever it is. You love them. And it's your desire to see them come to Christ. So God, help us to relax in that and to just keep our antenna up and to look for the opportunities that you give to us to speak the truth in love. Lord, would you meet us in worship tonight? Lord, as we spend just the next few minutes just loving you through these songs and offering to you a sacrifice of praise. Lord, there's probably some of us tonight who need, we need a breakthrough of some kind. We need a, a fresh touch from you, Lord. Maybe we, we have a burden that we, we've been carrying that's just been plaguing us and weighing us down. Lord, would you, would you lift the burdens? Would you give that fresh touch tonight? Do what is needful in our midst, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you would like prayer tonight, just make your way up here to the front and there's going to be somebody ready to pray with you and um, agree with someone in prayer uh, for your needs, whatever they may be. And let God, let God do something uh, special tonight. We have not simply because we ask not.